Chapter 44 of Memoirs of the Distinguished Men of Science of Great Britain, Living in the Years 1807-8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of the Distinguished Men of Science of Great Britain, Living in the Years 1807-8 by William Walker, Jr. Chapter 44. Thomas Telford, Fellow of the Royal Society, Lord and Earl, etc. Born August ninth, 1757. Died September second, 1834. The life of Thomas Telford adds another striking instance to those on record of men who, from the force of natural talent, unaided save by uprightness and persevering industry, have raised themselves from the lowest state in which they were born, and taken their stand among the master spirits of their age. Telford was born in the parish of Westerkirk, in the pastoral district of Eskdale in Dumfriesshire. His father, who followed the occupation of a shepherd, died while his son was yet an infant, and the orphan boy was thus left to the care of his mother, whose maiden name was Janet Jackson and for whom her son always cherished an affectionate regard, being in the habit, in her afterlife, of writing letters to her in printed characters, in order that she might be able to read them without assistance. Young Telford received the rudiments of education at the parish school of Westerkirk, and during the summer season was employed by his uncle as a shepherd-boy. This occupation left him abundant leisure, of which he made diligent use in studying the books furnished by his village friends. At the age of fourteen, he was apprenticed to a stonemason in the neighbouring town of Langholm, and for several years was employed chiefly in his native district in the construction of plain bridges, farm buildings, simple village churches and manses, and other works of a similar nature, such as are usually performed by a country mason in a district where there is little occasion for the higher departments of his art these operations afforded however good opportunities for obtaining practical knowledge and telford himself has expressed his sense of the value of this humble training observing that quote, as there is not sufficient employment to produce a division of labour and building the young practitioner is under the necessity of making himself acquainted with every detail in procuring, preparing, and employing every kind of material, whether it be the produce of the forest, the quarry, or the forge. And this necessity, although unfavourable to the dexterity of the individual workman, who earns his livelihood by expertness in one operation, is of singular advantage to the future architect and engineer, whose professional excellence must rest on the adaptation of materials and a confirmed habit of discrimination and judicious superintendence. End quote. When Telford had completed his apprenticeship as a stonemason, he remained for some time at Langholm working as a journeyman, his wages being eighteen pence per diem. The first bridge masonry on which he was engaged was the erection of a structure over the Esk at Langholm to connect the old with the new town. Mr. Smiles, in his Lives of the Engineers, tells a good story in connection with this bridge. 
Telford's master, one Thompson, was bound by contract to maintain it for a period of seven years. Not long after the completion of the structure, an unusually high flood swept along the valley, and Thompson's wife, Tibby, knowing the terms of her husband's contract, was in a state of great alarm lest the fabric should be carried away by the torrent. In her distress she thought of Telford, and calling out, "'Oh, we'll be ruined, we'll be ruined. Where's Tammy Telfer? Where's Tammy? Send in search of him.' When he came running up, Tibby exclaimed, "'Oh, Tammy, they've been on the brig and said it's shaking. It'll be doom.' "'Never you heed them, Tibby.' said Telford, clapping her on the shoulder. There's no fear of the brig. I like it all the better that it shakes. It proves it's well put together. Tibby's fears were not, however, so easily allayed, and asserting that she heard the brig rumbling, she ran up and set her back against it to keep it from falling. Whether Tibby's zealous support to the bridge in this instance was of any avail or no, Telford's opinion of the soundness of the structure has been proved by its withstanding the storms of nearly a century. At this early period of his life, Telford was remarkable for his elastic spirits and good humour, and in his native district of Eskdale was long remembered as Laughing Tam. His favourite pursuits were not as yet scientific, but literary, and he acquired some distinction as a poet. He wrote in the homely style of Ramsay and Ferguson, and used to contribute small pieces to Ruddyman's weekly magazine under the signature of Esdale Tam. One of his compositions, entitled Esdale, a short poem descriptive of the scenes of his early years, appeared in a provincial miscellany, and was subsequently reprinted at Shrewsbury at the request of his friends, and ultimately inserted in the appendix to his life. Another pleasing fragment of his composition is given at the end of the first volume of Dr. Curie's Life and Work of Burns, published in Liverpool in 1800. It is an extract from a poetical epistle sent by Telford, when at Shrewsbury, to the Ayrshire poet, recommending him to take up other subjects of a serious nature, similar to the Cotter's Saturday Night. At the age of twenty-three, Telford at length quitted Eskdale, and visited Edinburgh with a view to obtain better employment. The splendid improvements then in progress in that city enlarged his field of observation and enabled him to contemplate architecture as applied to the object of magnificence as well as utility, and he seemed at this time to have devoted much attention both to the scientific study of architecture and to drawing. After remaining in Edinburgh two years, he removed to London, where he obtained employment upon the quadrangle of Somerset House, then erecting by Sir William Chambers, an engagement in which he states that he obtained much practical information. After this, in 1784, he was engaged to superintend the erection of a house for the resident commissioner at Portsmouth Dockyard, and for the next three years was occupied upon various buildings in this dockyard, which gave him good opportunities of becoming well acquainted with the construction of graving docks, wharf walls, and other similar engineering works. Two or three years previous to this, Telford's good character and promising talent had secured for him the friendship of two families resident in his native district, the Paisleys and the Johnstons, and to their influence his early employment on important works is in some measure to be attributed. 
1787, having completed his engagements at Portsmouth, he was invited by Sir William Pulteney, a member of the Johnston family, to take the superintendence of some alterations to be made in Shrewsbury Castle. Telford consequently removed to Shrewsbury, where he was employed to erect a new jail, completed in 1793, and was afterwards appointed county surveyor, in which office, retained by him until death, he had to design and oversee the construction of bridges and similar works. The first bridge which he designed and built was that over the Severn at Montford, consisting of three elliptical stone arches, one of fifty-eight, and the others of fifty-five feet span. The next was the iron bridge over the Severn at Bilguas, which was the third iron bridge ever erected in Great Britain, the first being the Colebrookdale in Shropshire, built in the years 1777-9, and the second, the Weirmouth, erected between the years 1793-6. to Telford's bridge over the Severn was erected in 1796 and consisted of a single arch of 130 feet span, formed of five cast-iron ribs, and having a rise of only 14 feet. The width of the platform is 18 feet, and the total weight of iron in the bridge about 174 tons. It was constructed by the Colebrookdale Ironmasters at a cost of £6,034. Forty smaller bridges were erected in Shropshire under Telford's direction. The first great undertaking upon which Mr. Telford, in conjunction with Mr. Jessop, was engaged was the Ellesmere Canal, a series of navigations intended to unite the Severn, the Dee, and the Mersey, and extending altogether to a length of nearly 120 miles. From the date of this engagement, about 1793, Telford directed his attention almost entirely to civil engineering. In the execution of the immense aqueducts required on this work, which crossed the valleys of the Theroig or Chirk, and of the Dee, at an elevation of 70 and 120 feet, respectively, cast iron was first introduced as a material for forming the water troughs of the canal, in place of the usual puddled clay confined in masonry, a practice which involved great expense and some danger in times of frost from the expansion of the moist clay. In the locks of this canal, Telford also introduced cast-iron framing in place of timber, and in one instance, where the lock was formed in a quicksand, he made every part of the above material. The Caledonian Canal, of which Mr. Jessop was consulting engineer, was another of Mr. Telford's principal works. This canal was opened throughout its course, in the year 1823, and it forms a noble monument to the skill of the engineer. The locks are stated by Telford to be the largest ever constructed at that time, being 40 feet wide, and from 170 to 180 feet long. Of other canals constructed wholly or partially under his superintendence, it is sufficient to mention the Glasgow, Paisley, and Androssen, the Macclesfield, the Birmingham and Liverpool Junction, the Gloucester and Berkeley. The Birmingham, which was completely remodelled by him and adapted to the conduct of a very extensive traffic, and the Weaver navigation in Cheshire. On the continent, he likewise superintended the construction of the Goethe Canal in Sweden, a navigation of about 125 English miles, of which 55 are artificial canal. 
from the lake vena at one extremity this navigation rises 162 feet to the summit level and falls 370 feet to the Baltic at the other end. The rise and fall are affected by 56 locks, and the canal is 42 feet wide at the bottom. And as a farther mark of the royal approbation, received the King of Sweden's portrait set in diamonds. The works executed by Telford under the commissioners of Highland Roads and Bridges are of great importance. The practical operations under this commission, appointed in 1803, embraced about a thousand miles of new road, with nearly 1,200 new bridges, which caused the whole of Scotland, from its southern boundary near Carlisle, to the northern extremity of Caithness, and from Aberdeenshire on the east, to the Argyleshire Islands on the west, to be intersected by roads, and its largest rivers, and even inferior streams, to be crossed by bridges. The execution of this undertaking occupied a period of twenty-five years, and all was done under the sole direction of Telford. The great road from London to Holyhead remains, perhaps, one of the most perfect specimens of his skill as an engineer. The improvements in it were executed by him, under another parliamentary commission appointed in 1815, and Telford himself appears to have regarded this work with peculiar satisfaction. The Menai Suspension Bridge is, however, unquestionably one of the noblest monuments of Mr. Telford's fame, and it may be said to have inaugurated the era of the extensive introduction of wrought iron into great permanent structures exposed to heavy strains. The bridge was commenced in 1819 and opened for traffic in 1826. The distance between the two piers is 550 feet, and the whole roadway, which is carried over four arches on the one side and three on the other, has a length of 1,000 feet and a breadth of 30 feet. The total cost of the work was £120,000. Mr. Telford also built many other bridges of considerable size, and executed some important harbour works at Aberdeen and Dundee. But his most striking performance of this latter class is the St. Catherine Docks, London, one of his latest engagements was the survey of Dover Harbour, undertaken in January 1834 at the request of the Duke of Wellington, as warden of the Cinque Ports, with a view to the adoption of measures to check the accumulation of shingle at the entrance. During the course of his life, Mr. Telford taught himself Latin, French, and German, so as to be able to read those languages with fluency and to be able to converse freely in French. He is likewise said to have been well acquainted with algebra, but to have placed more reliance upon experiment than on mathematical investigation. He contributed to the Edinburgh Encyclopedia the articles Architecture, Bridge-Building, and Canal-Making. Besides the above, he wrote an account of his own life, giving elaborate descriptions of his various professional undertakings. Life of Thomas Telford, written by himself, edited by John Rickman, London, 1833, 4to. Although Telford was not connected with the Institution of Civil Engineers at its formation, he accepted their invitation in 1820 and became their president, and from that time he was unremitting in his attention to the duties of the office, having become, by his partial retirement from business, a pretty regular resident in the metropolis 
Telford was possessed of a robust frame, and till he had reached the age of seventy, had never been visited with any serious illness. While at Cambridge in the year 1827, he was afflicted with a severe and dangerous disorder, and although he gradually recovered a certain degree of health, he never regained his former vigour. He died a few years afterwards at his house in Abington Street, Westminster, having completed the 77th year of his age. His remains were deposited in Westminster Abbey, where there is a statue erected to his memory. End of chapter 44